This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is art, Mr. White. Actually, it's just basic chemistry. There's nothing basic about Brian Cranston. I am the danger. He intrigued us as Walter White, the chemistry teacher turned drug dealer in Breaking Bad, winning Emmy after Emmy after Emmy. Prosecution's case is closed. Now he's tackling another riveting character in Your Honor. I don't want to be this person. But who is Brian Cranston the person? We're about to dig into his life and his career, stretching from TV to Broadway. God bless you. And drama to comedy. You something. And the unlikely way he got into acting. We have two things in common. Do I get a hint? I find cooking really hard. I find it really stressful. Do you feel your life is in danger? And the love of my mother is what brought me here. What was the worst investment? Oh, there's a long list of really bad ones. Brian Cranston, welcome. Great to talk with you again. Thank you for doing this. Thank you, Chris. Good to be here. You are on the air right now in season two of the Showtime series, Your Honor. For those folks who haven't watched it, explain the premise of the show. The first season uh, is what really got me, the, the concept of what would you do to save the life of your child? Uh, my character, Michael Desiato, plays a very righteous man, a very good uh, person. A judge. A judge. His job is to determine what is right and what is wrong and as far as behavior. His son uh, gets involved in a, um, a car accident and panics and leaves the scene therefore becoming a criminal because it's against the law. So the boy who he hit on a motorcycle passes away. And we should point out one more thing, which is the boy who he hits who passes away is the son of the mob boss of the yes. city. Yes, that little wrinkle is what, <laughs> what creates the problem in the, in the first season that I truly felt that if I allowed my son to go through the system, that that man would kill my son. Well, and so would, I, that tees it up perfectly. So okay. here you are to catch people up in season one, a judge who is committing all kinds of crimes to protect your son and pushing him hard to go along. Take a look. Do you know what day it is tomorrow? Yeah. It's Saturday. Yeah, Saturday. And life will go on and Saturday will be Saturday, except that they are burying Rocco Baxter dead. Should I just pretend that isn't happening? Yes! Yes! That's what you do. You have to move on. Which raises the central question, as you put it, of this whole project, which is how far would you go to protect your son or whatever it is that you love? 
So, Brian, how far would you go? Well, I would lay down my life to protect my child. And I think any loving parent would say that. It's not an easy thing to say, but... But would you commit crimes? I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, I'd step in front of them. But would you do the kinds of immoral, illegal things that your character does? If I truly believed that by doing so would save the life of my child, yes, I would. And that's the the conundrum of the, the series, is that, okay, so you make that impulsive decision, you're going to protect your child, you have to tell a lie in order to do that, and then you have to tell another lie to protect the first lie, and, and so on. And pretty soon, you're a liar. And then collateral damage comes into play. People who are innocent are getting caught up in that swirl of lies, and then you're stuck, and you lose your soul, you lose your principles. And that's what really caught my attention in Your Honor, is that it's, it's conceivable that this could happen. So now you're in season two, right. you're in prison for all of your crimes, and a prosecutor is trying to force you to leave prison and take down the mob family, the family of the, the boy who was killed. Right by your son. Let's take a look at a clip from that. I can't be a spy for you. I didn't get you out of prison for your espionage skills. I don't need you to fake anything, okay? I just need you to be you. Why? Because you have relationships that no one else has. No, no. Everyone who gets close to me ends up hurt. This was originally supposed to be a limited series, one season. So why did you come back for season two? What I was intrigued about the second season is the first season a man loses his principles, loses his soul. The second season is about, is that person a throwaway? Is he now forgotten? Or is there redemption possible in his future? And also the power of forgiveness, both in in asking forgiveness and granting forgiveness, I think I wanted to explore that. Our society feels coarser now, harder, less empathetic. And I I wanted to explore an avenue of of the area of human, the human experience where we embrace the power and the goodness of forgiveness. And it's not a weakness. It is actually a strength of character. You know, it's so interesting you say that because... You know, I think of people who have been on the wrong side of Me Too or various other things, and, and they're cast out of society. Yeah. And, you know, obviously there's some people who should utterly be cast out of society and should be in prison. Right. But it seems like we're awfully quick to, uh, <laughs> to say capital punishment. You're, you're, it's over. You're irredeemable. Don't ever come back. I think in our, in our greater business... You know, people who, who misbehave have gone by the wayside and, and have lost their careers. Uh, it, should everyone lose their career? No, no. It's an individual by individual basis. And I believe that if someone truly uh, has, has contrition, doesn't blame anybody, and does work on themselves personally, not go to a dude ranch for three months, but actually work on yourself to become a better person, within time, 
society might allow that person to come back in, and I think that's the right thing. I think it's fair to say that you are widely considered to be one of the great American actors today. Uh, you have uh, won uh, six Emmys, mm. two Tonys, a number of iconic roles, which we're going to get to. How do you feel when people say that? Slightly embarrassed about that because I, I feel that I have been very fortunate in the pathway that, that found me. And uh, when people say, for example, no one could have done uh, Walter White on Breaking Bad like you did, and I thought, oh, yes, they're good. I know I can count on, on my hands how many people I know personally who could have done it. Obviously, it would have been different, but um, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. You did a lot of things as a young man, from security guard to farmhand, <laughs> killing chickens. And I understand it could not have been more random how you ended up taking an acting class in junior college. Our family had splintered. I didn't, my father was out of the picture. I didn't see him since I was 11 years old. And now I'm graduated from high school and I really don't know my pathway. So I went to this junior college to then transfer to UCLA to continue as a, a police science major. But in order to do that, I had to take some electives. And I look on the board in those days, it hand, hand boards. Uh, so I, I saw acting and I thought, oh, acting, that's fun. I went to this acting class and um, a black box theater and the, an overworked, uh, underpaid teacher said, you two read this, you two read this, and you two read this. And I happened to be standing next to a really pretty girl by luck. And we got the scene and, oh, God, I'm reading this scene with her. And I... The first sentence of the scene says, a couple is making out on a park bench. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no. And I looked over her. She's talking to a friend. And I thought, oh, any moment now she's going to lo look at that and then see who she has to kiss. Try to make myself more attractive. Try to make myself... You know, so I'd start to pose and, you know, those those nature shows where the birds are showing off their plumage. You know, I start to feel like that, like, hey, look at this. What a mate I would be, you know. Yeah, I'm not sure that was the way to go, Brian. But <laughs> <laughs> That's the way I felt. And uh, we did the scene. She was absolutely into it completely. She was kissing me and kissing me and hands and tongue. And it was like, oh, I'm 19 years old. This was my job in this class. My head starts to explode at the break. I asked her for, for her number so we can go out to lunch. And she said, oh, no, I, I have a boyfriend. I was acting. And walked away. And yes. So not only was my head spinning from the experience of kissing this pretty girl, my assignment in that class, but now she's telling me she wasn't into me at all. She was... Oh, my God. Now, what's this world to me? And so I thought, I, I don't know what I want to do, but this is really attractive. And if I am going to go down that path, I better become really good at it. You mentioned the fact that your family had split up and you hadn't seen your dad uh, since he, he, you were 11. I mean, part of this was that your dad, Joe, was an actor and didn't make it and walked away from the family. So it strikes me that this would have been a, an odd and maybe somewhat frightening path to go down to having seen how it had hurt your father's life. I can only say that you 
went into the family business because you were around it. You were you were infused in 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 journalism, and and I was in my family business. So when you think of it that way, it's very common. Yeah. Yes, but I mean the one difference I'd say is. <laughs> My father had a happier experience yes, than did. your father did, so it seemed more attractive. Well, here, here's the difference. The distinction was, and rest his soul, my father was ego-driven and said he wanted and needed to become a star. And he was determined to become a star. Well, that's, that's reaching for some end result. That's not the work. So I reversed that, and I said, I just want to get really good at, at being an actor and make a living as an actor, keep my nut low, just make a living. And to this day, at 25 years old, when all I did from that point on was work as an actor for a living, that's my, my proudest accomplishment professionally. Is that you've made a living out of it? I made a I living. And, and I'm still no, very I agree. Frugal. People, you know, in this business, sometimes they'll say to me, you know, I want to be an anchor. And I say, you're just setting yourself up for disappointment and frustration because so few people are going to do that. Just if you like the work, if you like going out in the morning, cover the story, come back, tell people about it, then it's a great life. But if you sit there and say, I want to be something rather than do something. Yes, that's that's you put it perfectly be something rather than do something. And I, I tell people that, uh, young actors all the time, when you have an audition, it's not trying to go get a job. You're going there to do a job. Just focus on doing your job and the rest will fall into place. The first time I remember having seen you was on Seinfeld when you uh -huh. played the sketchy dentist, Tim Watley. I beg your pardon, sketchy dentist? Well, take, a, wait a, a minute, take a look because this was the scene I remember. Cheryl, would you ready the nitrous oxide, please? <laughs> if you're not taking a hit of the nitrous oxide, isn't a little sketchy. The question I have is, I understand that that bit was not in the script. It was not in the script, uh, and I didn't think of it. Uh, we had rehearsed that scene, right? and then I wanted to stay on my set to get used to the stool where the tools were and things, just to, to, to get comfortable in that dental office. And uh, Jerry and everyone else went to another set to rehearse that. And as I'm rolling around on the stool and feeling my place, I hear, hey, you know what would be funny? And I, I look around and I, there's a guy on a ladder adjusting a lamp. And I, I go, no, guy on a ladder adjusting a lamp. What would be funny? He said, if you took a hit of the nitrous oxide first before you give it to Jerry. And I thought, that's brilliant. So I waited until the audience came in, was fully low. I didn't tell Jerry. I didn't tell Larry David. I didn't tell anybody. And I was, nurse, may I have it? Boom. What you saw there in the clip is like take number 22 or 23. Because when I first did it, Jerry fell over laughing. And then Larry loved the bit. And he said, Jerry, stop laughing. Jerry, Jerry, stop laughing. Stop laughing. And Jerry had to stop laughing. Well, wait, what did Jerry do? What did he say? Because well, I understand I you do good impressions of both of them. I don't want to stop laughing. It's very funny. <laughs> um, and I said, it wasn't me. It was, and I looked around to see the guy, and I saw him uh, with it, leaning on a doorway. And I said, that guy came up with the bit. And all heads turned to the guy. And he was just leaning on a doorway, and he just went, 
you know, he's <laughs> like, I got a million of them. If people would just listen, I got a million, you know. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. So the next time I remember seeing you was as Hal, the hapless dad on Malcolm in the Middle. And this scene captures exactly who (laughs) Hal was. Who wants to make five bucks? Hal. I need someone to take the fall. Oh, my God. What did you do? I can't tell you. Yes or no, no questions asked. Oh, my God. Make it ten. Done. Oh, my God. Good son. I got him, honey. I got him. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed your own work there. Oh it, is, it is so how that. It's... I mean, I'm paying off my kids to take the rap for something that I did to my wife. Yes. Uh, you know, I loved that show. Malcolm in the Middle was so well written. It was just so beautifully done. Linwood Boomer, the creator of the show, made sure that the audience knew the nucleus of this family was tight and they loved each other and they had dinner together every night. And once they established that the audience felt fine with that, then we can go crazy. And the boy energy was just such a great year. Seven years, man. That was really a great time. Is it true that the writers on the show used to try to come up with ever more humiliating stunts for you to do, and in fact made a game of it called What Won't Brian Do? That's the, that's what I was told, yes, that they had that that list. They had a list in the, on the board there, all the crazy things. And such, such as? Well, um, you know, I, I had, uh, I don't know, 25, 30,000 bees on me. I wore in, in one episode honeybees uh, that it, was, it felt like a, a chain mail. It was so heavy and so, it was amazing. And I did that, and then I was naked and covered in blue paint completely. Uh, well, that's I was, not so bad. It's not so bad. You've done that before. <laughs> I, I mean, I've, come on. Um, strapped to the front of a moving bus in the city. I mean, I uh, roller skating. Uh, you know, I, I just did do whatever because, as an actor, you're looking for opportunities to step into someone else's shoes and 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 experiences. Well, let's talk about somebody else's shoes. In 2008, your landmark role as Walter White in Breaking Bad. If you're a chemistry teacher turned meth dealer, you make your first batch of meth with your partner in crime, Jesse. This is art, Mr. White. Actually, it's just basic chemistry, but thank you, Jesse. I'm glad it's acceptable. Acceptable? You're the goddamn iron chef. Every jib head from here to Timbuktu is gonna wanna taste. Man, I gotta gotta try this. No, no. No, we only sell it. We don't use it. What was the key to creating Walter White? 
Um, I, in every character that I I take on, my goal is to find the emotional core of a character. I couldn't find his, and then I realized it was calloused over. Um, he is forgotten. He is was a forgotten man. He is filled with regrets and missed opportunities. And he, I wanted to have him look at the beginning that he blended into the, into the walls. He became invisible to society and to himself until he found something that he did really well. And unfortunately, it was illegal. And, but he, he allowed his ego to be infused by that power. And uh, it got the better of him. As you, the show went on and you won three straight Emmys, the first person to do it, maybe the only one since Bill Cosby, you transformed, in the words of the series creator Vince Gilligan, I love this, from Mr. Chips, because you were a chemistry teacher, to Scarface. Yeah. Take a look. You clearly don't know who you're talking to, so let me clue you in. I am not in danger, Skyler. I am the danger. A guy opens his door and gets shot, and you think that of me? No. I am the one who knocks. That's pretty different from the beginning. Why do you think this became such an iconic series? I think people related to this guy. They empathized with, it, with him um, to, to have a man who is... Uh, trying to really instill enthusiasm in his in his science uh, to nothing but a sea of apathy with his students, to having to have a second job for his special needs son care, um, so the teaching profession, the healthcare system, these were all um, part of it, and you felt for him, and he's got terminal cancer, and this poor son of a gun is like oh, and then he and that was all by design, create the empathy, and then. You, you, everybody was signed on and rooting for him, but then he does something illegal. Well, I'll, I'll give him a pass. And something a little brutal, a little more, a little more. And, and Vince Gilligan wanted to see how long he can go and how far he can go away from that initial man and still keep the allegiance from the audience. So it was a real test, and it's never been done in the history of television to have a series star uh, change character within the course of the series. And so I was blown away by that prospect and wanted to be a part of it. The year after Breaking Bad ended, you made your Broadway debut playing Lyndon Johnson, LBJ, former president, uh, in the play All the Way. And here is a scene from the TV movie that was made from the play. Mm -hmm. It is time now to write the next chapter in the book's law. I urge you to enact President Kennedy's civil rights bill into law so that we can eliminate from this nation every trace of discrimination that is based upon race or color. So how, you don't look like Lyndon Johnson, you don't sound like Lyndon Johnson, how did you get inside that character and capture him so beautifully? Well, thank you, but I, I think it's more the opposite. You, you invite a character to come inside you because the, this is the vessel that has to go on stage. So, um, and, and you never know. Uh, every actor starts a new job not really knowing 
if it's going to work, but trusting that it will because your determination, your enjoyment and, and insatiable curiosity to, to learn more and read the biographies and his autobiography and just dive in deep, uh, and then using your imagination to tie in the loose ends and things like that, your own personal experiences of, of despair or grief or ambition or whatever the case may be, and you put it all together almost like a souffle and hope it rises. And then there's your most recent Broadway appearance as Howard Beale, the anchorman turned mad prophet <laughs> in Network. And, and what strikes me is based on a movie that came out in 1976, its message about politics and media and corporate greed stands up pretty well today, doesn't it? We thought, we thought it did, yeah. So that's why I thought it was, it was maybe prescient of the time that, that back then it was the, the uh, occasion to, to present that, but, but it's really had a shelf life that is extraordinary. And here we are in the 20s, and it's, it's very apropos now. And, and why do you, I mean, in what way do you think, how do you think the message applies to us today? Well, because it's a show. What I didn't realize when I was a young boy growing up, watching your father, watching, I didn't know that there were decisions made by, by producers to say, well, let's go with these four stories now, and we'll lead with this one. And, we'll, and I, I just thought it was just presented. And, and so once you realize, oh, there are human beings behind all these decisions about what to say and what not to say, you realize, oh, it can be, it can be altered. It can be biased. It could be anything. And, and that's what we realize is that uh, it's, a, it's a business. It's really a business. And it's, it's hard to carve in and find out who is speaking the truth to you. It's, it's really difficult. And the choices think? that are made by the people on the air and the people behind the scenes can affect what the audience sees and how they receive it. Yes, very much and, so. And what they end up thinking. Right. So now we have, we have opinion shows that are masked under the umbrella heading of news, and it's like, well, wait a minute, is that really news, or this is this, is this person's point of view? And, and it gets muddy, and it, gets, uh, it crosses over, and it confuses people, and in a way that I think people want it to be confusing. The people behind the scenes. Yeah. You got into a tussle recently with Bill Maher about critical oh. race theory oh. and wokeness. When you look at the political discourse in our country today and the role that media plays in it, what, what do you think? It's difficult to, to try to find truly unbiased uh, reporting news that really is straight shooters. You know, I, this conversation I had with, with Bill, uh, we we're talking about critical race theory, and I, I think it's imperative that it's, it's taught that, that, uh, that we look at our history much the same, I think, that Germany has looked at their history in involvement in the wars that they won and two, and embrace it and say, this is where we went wrong. This is how it went wrong. This is why it can't go wrong again. And I think they have done a very commendable job in doing so, but the United States really hasn't. You present it and say, well, 400 years of slavery, yeah, but let's, we're moving on, we're moving on. And it's like, no, let's, let's really discuss it. 
How did that happen? How did we get to a point where we treated other human beings as slaves and, and were okay with that? When I, when I see the, the Make America Great Again, my comment is, do you, do, you, do you accept that that could possibly be construed as a racist remark? And most people, a lot of people go, how could that be racist? Make America great again? I said, so just ask yourself from, from an African-American experience, when was it ever great in America for the African-American? When was it great? So if you're making it great again, it's not including them. So it's, it's to teach us in the woke world to open up and, and accept the possibilities that our privilege has created blind spots for us. And maybe I haven't seen what is really happening yet in all my years. To end this <laughs> on a different note, for all of the serious talk, uh, your co-stars on Breaking Bad say that you are a man or a, a child trapped in a man's body and that they've never known anyone who found it so amusing to stuff fruit down his pants. That's, you know, that kind of rumor is what makes me smile. Um, <laughs> rumor or fact? You know, there can be some fact to some of these things. Um, you know, as, as someone who comes on a set and, and uh, I, I lead a cast, whether it's on Broadway or in a movie or whatever, I, I want to I protect and, and have fun with my cast and crew. And sometimes in the 16th hour, everybody's dragging. And it's like, I think we need a little perk. And so I'll do something silly or even borderline stupid in order to just make everybody wake up and laugh and finish the work before we all go home. And what's the stupidest piece of fruit you stuffed down your pants? Well, I don't know if you can call it stupid, but, uh, you know, <laughs> blueberries, perhaps, because they keep falling down. I did, they don't stay. I was thinking it was going to be a grapefruit. So, yes, exactly. <laughs> Brian Cranston, thank you. This thank is a you. delight. Great talking to you. Please come back and we'll do it again. Thanks, Chris. Incidentally, Your Honor wraps up its second and perhaps final <laughs> season. We'll see March 17th on Showtime. Thank you for watching. Catch us every Sunday night on CNN and keep streaming anytime you want right here on HBO Max to find out who's talking next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. 
Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.